You are listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be reading and studying today verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the New King James, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's an important title. You might want to highlight or circle that. It'll come back into play in a minute. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard the tribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Micah 5 2, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully. For the young child. And when you found him, bring him, uh, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. This morning, we find ourselves uh, studying uh, continually in the last three weeks the incarnation of Jesus. And what we've been talking about is that that truth, the incarnation, the fact that The word became flesh. That doctrine should evoke, of all things, it should evoke worship. It should invoke a sense of um, glorying in who Jesus is. The only appropriate response to the coming of Jesus is really worship. And so two weeks ago, we read Luke chapter 2 about the angels. And remember, they were glorifying God and they were kind of telling the shepherds the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And and then if you were here last week, we talked uh, also in Luke chapter 2 about Simeon and Anna, this this, uh, older man and this older prophetess, and their kind of celebration of joy uh, surrounding the gift that Jesus is to us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And so they they responded in worship. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to some other worshipers. We've talked about angels. We've talked about shepherds. We've talked about Mary and Joseph. We've talked about Simeon and Anna. But there's someone else in the story that we haven't talked about yet. And when we think about Christmas, you guys know who I'm talking about. We sing about them often. There's a carol that we find them in. I think it's We Three Kings. And so here's how the line goes. We Three Kings of Orient are. Who knows the next line? Yeah, yeah, let's put it up there. Bearing gifts, we traverse far. How many of you had to sing it to, to remember it? <laughs> you gotta, wait, what is it? Okay, now I remember it. We Three Kings. Okay, I've got an issue with that title, but is that the only Christmas song that features these guys? No, they're hinted at in a lot of Christmas songs, uh, most notably the first Noel. Here's the line that we sing in the first Noel. Then entered in 
those wise men three fully reverently, or full reverently upon their knee and offered there in his presence their gold and myrrh and frankincense. I'm glad they found some word to rhyme with frankincense. And so I don't know if you caught that, these wise men three. And when you start looking uh, around scripture, not in scripture, but in kind of uh, our Christmas singing, caroling, um, you start seeing these wise men finding themselves everywhere at Christmas, including everywhere they don't belong, which is the nativity, okay? So what I want you to do during your break, some of you have an extended break. How many of you have next week completely off? Does anyone have totally off next week? Someone's like, I'm unemployed. All right, so during your extended break next week from work, <laughs> Uh, while you're eating and while you're kind of enjoying, relaxing time, with us, go on Google and uh, search for just the word nativity. Search for it. Just type in the word nativity. And, and a lot of pictures <laughs> will actually come up. Uh, typically, this is the standard nativity scene that we uh, come to, okay? There's, there's, uh, there's Jesus, check. That's good. We got Mary and Joseph, check. Over to the left, we've got some shepherds uh, outside, I think there's some animals nearby. Uh, and then on the right, who do we have? Right over here on the right-hand side, we've got one on one bended knee and two, we've got three wise men. There's three. Uh, here's another nativity scene that really emphasizes kind of uh, th this moment. Here's, here's, I guess they're outside in a, is that a pop-up tent? I'm not really sure, but here they are. There's the star over them and uh, there's three. All right, there's another nativity scene that Hallmark um, just put out that, wait a minute. All right, that's not a nativity scene. That's just dogs and towels. Anyway, Hallmark, Hallmark just did this, and um, they really emphasized the animals, and apparently only one shepherd was there. The other guys got fired, and they replaced the other shepherds on the right with, who is it? It's the three kings. There's three of them, okay? Um, and so one nativity scene I actually particularly like. It's a painting by Gerard von Honthorst called Adoration of the Shepherds. And I love this painting because you can't really see it because of the contrast between light and dark. I love that. A lot of the Baroque kind of uh, painters, uh, Dutch painters would, would do that contrast. I love that. Um, years ago, I started this movement where if I'm at someone's house and I see a nativity set, um, I, I kind of got in trouble with my wife. What I would do is if I came to your house and there was a nativity set with the wise men, I would actually take them and I would hide them somewhere else in the house. I'd kind of put them aside and, and I'd remove them. And Jen said, you gotta stop doing that. So now I've kind of updated that a little more grace-filled uh, in my older age. And so here's what I do now. Now I put a little sticky note on there and I say, within the next two years, these wise men arrived, all right? Why is he ruining Christmas? All right, so the reason I'm so passionate about the wise men and the nativity, here's why. The Bible clearly communicates they were not there the night of Jesus' birth, okay? And, and the Bible does not say that there were three wise men, okay? I'm not just being stressed out for no reason. Listen, if we can't get the story of the birth of Jesus right, what else in his life and teachings will we miss and will we get wrong? So who were these three wise men? Uh, were there three? Where did they come from? Uh, when did they arrive? How many were there? Today I want us to understand the amazing story of the Magi, and particularly their worship. And I hope today you're greatly encouraged, uh, as I was this week in studying um, how they offered their worship. And so this morning, rather than our standard kind of outline, here's what I want us to do. We're gonna do things a little bit differently this morning. If you're taking note, here's the outline that we're gonna follow. Uh, we're gonna look at kind of four things, four various things in this text. Matthew chapter two, one 
through 12. And you may see the there. Today we're going to look at that differently. We're going to see in this text the king of the Jews. We're going to see the wise men or the magi. We're going to see the star in the east, and we're going to look at the three gifts. Okay, so that's where we're going as a template. Let's look back at verse 1 and learn about the king of the Jews. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, notice that phrase, the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Uh, They came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born? Here it is, king of the Jews. Okay, and notice that Matthew 2 picks up after, he says in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This is the days of Herod the king. Okay, and now notice in verse 2 that they enter of all the Jews. We want to meet this king, the king of the Jews. We've seen his star, and we've come here to worship him, and we know he's just been born. Uh, the people who they would have spoken to would immediately have said, shh, you got to be quiet, keep it down. Herod's the king of the Jews. Don't start bringing up other kings. If you do that, Herod's going to be upset. And listen, Herod doesn't do good things when he gets upset, okay? We don't want to, listen, he's our king, okay? And he's not a baby. I mean, he acts like a baby, but listen, uh, he won't be happy to hear that a new king has been born. Now, notice what happens in uh, verse 3 when Herod gets wind of this. It says, when Herod, here it is again, the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Uh, the reason Jerusalem was troubled is because when he gets troubled, mama ain't happy. Ain't no, okay, so it happens in your home as well. All right, so uh, I, I grew up, if mom's having a bad day, everyone's just toast, right? Just stay away. Just at least stay out of the house. I live in the backyard for a while. When Herod's upset, sorry to make that connection, moms, but when Herod's upset, everyone's upset. He's troubled, all of Jerusalem with him. Look at verse four. He gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, one thing you ultimately want to watch out for uh, is upsetting Herod. The Greek word for troubled means to be emotionally distressed, uh, the word here in verse 3. Now, interestingly, that's the same word used of Jesus when, remember, he was at Lazarus' home and he sees everyone mourning. It says that he was deeply distressed and moved in spirit. He was distressed. He was troubled. Same word. Verse 3 says that Herod was the king, the king of the Jews. A little backstory on Herod. Herod was known as Herod the Great, but he wasn't that great. Uh, he loved that title because probably he, uh, the reason he loved being called the Great was he stood at four feet, four inches tall. He was not a great man of stature. He was a short man that wanted to be tall. Uh, Herod ruled from around 39 B.C. to uh, his death in 4 B.C. Okay, that means our calendar is a little bit off by a few years. You know that, right? That shouldn't wreck Christmas for you to know that our calendar's not perfect. It's a little bit off. You're like, wait, it's still 2013? I don't know. Our, our calendar's a little bit off, okay? Uh, but Herod, as a person, was an Edomian. He was an Edomite, okay? His cultural heritage, he was an Edomite. What does that mean? It means that he was a descendant from Esau. Remember the twin older brother of Jacob, the one who was not gonna receive the birthright, not a son of the promise. Later, God renamed Jacob Israel, and from Israel came the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Esau's kind of that awkward older brother. And so God loved Jacob, we learn in Romans, but he rejected Esau. And so the Edomites, descended from Esau, they were, they were greatly despised by the Jews. So that's Herod's kind of heritage. Um, his father 
uh, Antipater was installed into power by the Romans. He basically did a, a little favor for Julius Caesar. And Caesar said, hey, because of that, I'm going to reward you with an army, and I'm going to call you Herod the Great. Now, his son says, I'm, and we'll put him on the screen. He was known, first of all, for his building projects, and secondly, his paranoid cruelty. Okay, he built lots of palaces. He built fortresses, Masada, which is this fortress in the uh, Judean desert. He built all these aqueducts, and, and most notably, he kind of... Uh, uh, remodeled the temple, probably for his Jewish wife. Uh, but he was uh, really known, especially for paranoid cruelty. Uh, he believed everyone was out to take away his title. Someone wants to take me out as king. There's someone else that wants to be the king of the Jews, but I'm the king of the Jews. And so anyone that he believed was a threat, he didn't banish them, he didn't exile them, he killed them. Uh, one night, he killed his wife, and then later in the evening, he killed both of his two sons. The next day, he woke up and felt bad. He's like, oh, that wasn't a good thing to do. his family that he had. He later built a tower and then dedicated the tower to uh, his family that he had killed. At the end of his life, he was so paranoid, no one's gonna mourn me when I die, that he ordered 100 leaders, including Pharisees, uh, to be put to death when he died so that his day would be a day of mourning for all of Jerusalem. Thankfully, when he died, they didn't carry that order out. Otherwise, there would have been great mourning. Uh, one person said this, it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. You know who said that? Caesar Augustus said that, wow. So this paranoid despot known as the king of the Jews, worried and threatened by anyone that says they wanna be king, now he hears that there's people arriving from the east that say, hey, where's the king? He's very troubled and is looking to take him out. So notice verse four, it says that Herod gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is almost a, uh, this is almost a, a Judaistic conference. We're gonna have a Bible conference and find out where Messiah is to be born. Okay, that's, that sounds like an awesome thing. Wrong motive, though. Uh, the point is not to worship, but to kill. Look at verse five. They said, okay, here's where he's to be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. Not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. And then they quote Micah 5, 2. Uh, this verse clearly says that even though Bethlehem is small and insignificant as a village, in fact, you guys know this, I, I read this week, Bethlehem is in the top 10 most disappointing tourist stops in the world. Uh, it's like number three. People arrive and they're like, Bethlehem, oh, it's kind of a little town, right? And when we sing that, we're literally singing, it's a little town of Bethlehem. We could say, oh, little town of Mayaka, all right? So it, it's just not that exciting. You sneeze and you miss it, right? You're on your way, you're like, did we pass Mayaka? Oh, we're in Arcadia already, I guess so, right? In God's providence, he moved Caesar Augustus to um, call for the census, and that led Mary and Joseph away from their home of Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And so the scriptures, if you're taking note today, give us kind of four awesome messianic prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. This is specifically about the birth of Jesus and his early years. We'll put them on the screen for you. Um, this is fulfilled in Christ. First of all, he was to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Uh, he also was to be called out of Egypt. How can you be called out of Egypt if you were born in Bethlehem? Well, you see that later in this chapter, which we won't read today, but you can read later. Hosea 11.1. 1. Uh, later in this chapter, there was also weeping in Ramah, Jeremiah 31. That's something that happened when Herod wants to put out this new king. And number four, the Messiah was to be a root from the stem of Jesse, and therefore he was called a Nazarene, Isaiah 11.1. 1. 
All of these are fulfilled in Jesus. And this is just four surrounding his birth. There's, there's many, many more. As someone once foolishly said, well, you know what? Jesus just went around and fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament on purpose. He just went around, he read them, and he just tried to fulfill them. I would just say, really? How did he fulfill those in his birth? Did he tell his parents before he was born, I want you to take me to have me be born in Bethlehem. Uh, hey, make sure that we reroute to Egypt. Obviously, um, that's silly. So notice in verse two, Jesus wasn't to become the king of the Jews. No, he was born the king of the Jews. Herod can wear the title all day long, but Jesus alone is the king. And the wise men announce his arrival. So let's look at who these wise men are and where they're from. Look at verse seven. Verse seven says, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We know he's not being honest here, he's lying. Herod is the textbook narcissistic liar. They tell you what you wanna hear, but secretly they're motivated by self, driven by what looks like compassion and help, but not to serve you but themselves. We talked about them last year in Proverbs, the selfish fool. So Herod, he's not wanting to worship, he wants to take, he wants to steal, he wants to end life. He wants to put Jesus to death. So look at their response in verse nine. Uh, When they heard Herod, they departed, and this is really intriguing, the star where they had seen, uh, which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now notice verse 11. When they had come into the, what word do you have there in your New King James or in your Bibles? What's the next word? Say it loud. House. house. When they came into the house, they weren't near a manger, now they're in a house. Okay, all right, we've cleared that up. That's taken care of. Um, It says, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. The same word for fell down is the same word they said back in verses one and two. We've come to worship him. The idea is we're coming to fall down, uh, to lay our lives down before him. Uh, Notice there's three gifts here, but nowhere in the text does it say there are only three men. I'm not trying to make a big deal about that and like ruin Christmas for everyone. I don't need a hug. I'm just letting you know it's important uh, that it doesn't say. Now, Wycliffe actually translated wise men as kings, but we're not told specifically whether or not they're kings. Uh, Verse one says that they came from the east and they saw a star, okay? Uh, If you're tracking with us this morning, most scholars Uh, believe the wise men were actually a group of scientists and stargazers from Babylon. And there's a lot of great evidence supporting that uh, idea. Wise men literally is the word magi, short for magicians. And those who practice kind of scientific inquiry or studied astrology, they kind of put them all together as the magicians, the magi. And that name stuck through Europe even in the Enlightenment. Uh, It's quite uh, quite, quite possible these men were part of the Babylonian magi that would have been ruled by Daniel centuries earlier. If if, uh, you look on the screen, Daniel chapter two, verse two, says the king summoned, here it is, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. He had this crazy dream. Uh, The idea is the Chaldeans, that's the same concept. The Chaldeans were known as the astrologers, part of these wise men. Later in verse 48 of Daniel two, it says the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. We know that part 
But did you know this from Daniel? He was also the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. He was the administrator. He's like in the office. All right, we've got this astrologer and we've got this sorcerer. He was the administrator of all of these men. Um, Babylon was the home of astrology. But we actually don't know for sure from the text if they're from Babylon, Arabia, Persia. We don't really know. Uh, what I love is um, the co-founder of the Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy, uh, Craig Chester. Here's what he says about them. He says, they might have been Zoroastrians, Medes, Persians, Arabs, or even Jews. They served as court advisors, making forecasts and predictions for their royal patrons based on their study of the stars, about which they were quite knowledgeable. Magi often wandered from court to court, and it was not unusual for them to cover great distances in order to attend the birth or crowning of a king, paying their respects and offering gifts. It is not surprising, therefore, that Matthew would mention them as validation of Jesus' kingship or that Herod would regard their arrival as a very serious matter. Now, that's a little bit of what we know. Legend takes it a little further. Legend says, oh, this was the representative of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, some say that, like in Ben-Hur, that their names are Caspar, Belthazar, Melchior. Church history even goes so far with some legend that um, their three skulls were found um, and they're brought to the uh, Cathedral of Cologne. And so there's kind of some kind of like folklore that has gone um, in. But the text says that they followed the star and that it arose in the east. Let's not forget this. These are Gentiles who are coming to worship Jesus. I think it's interesting that Matthew writing to Jews includes this part in this story, and then Luke writing to Gentiles includes the Jewish shepherds in his narrative. That's interesting. I think it's a subtle bookend at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Uh, here at the beginning, men from the ends of the earth are coming to learn of Jesus. And then at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. I think it's just an interesting a book in. And so I believe that these guys were less astrologers and more astronomers. Okay, there's a significant difference, by the way, and most people link the two together until the 17th century. Here's, here's the difference. Astronomy is the scientific study of the universe and movements and positions of heavenly bodies. That's astronomy. All right, so if you have a telescope, anyone have a telescope growing up? I think my parents got me a target one, right? So, I mean, you can't even see across the street, let alone up into the sky. And so that is a legitimate practice and, and that can bring glory and honor to God as we study the heavenly bodies, okay? Um, astrology, on the other hand, is the false religious belief that those movements and positions influence human behavior and destiny, okay? These are quite different. So when I look up at Orion and his belt, I'm intrigued at the placement in the sky and, and oh man, what stars or planets comprise each of the the stars in that constellation, okay? I do not, however, open my newspaper and as a Scorpio and look for guidance for my friendship, like I'm looking for something unexpected today. I think that's silliness. There's one uh, horoscope that said this, just found the most accurate horoscope. Aries, Taurus, all of them, the stars and planets will not affect your life in any way, okay? We need to rest in that, that's silliness. Please do not consult uh, anything other than the word of God for direction. The actual word for astrology in the Hebrew language literally means divining the heavens. A divination is an act of foretelling future events or secret knowledge by means of signs or omens or some supernatural agency, including the stars. That practice of pagan divination, it's prohibited 
by God. You're like, well, it's a little fuzzy. Let me read it to you. Leviticus chapter 19, 26. Here's as clear as I can get. Do not practice divination or sorcery. There it is. Listen, please pay careful attention to this point. The Magi were not worshiping the star, okay? They were studying creation deeply in order that they may worship Jesus more fully. The star itself, creation itself, does not demand worship. It directs it. You know the difference? Creation does not demand worship. It directs it. And so the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens point us to Jesus. And I believe this is the beauty of scholarship and science. The scholarship and science are not kind of the polar opposite of faith. On the contrary, the more we grow in our intellect and scientific inquiry, I actually believe the more we're led to see the complexity uh, and the power of a creator. In the same way, if someone were to offer me your iPhone 10 and just say, here, I've got one and let me bring it up here and let me disassemble it, smash it on the ground and take it apart. I would never do that, certainly, to such a beautiful piece of machinery. But if I were to, to do that, if I were to take it apart, you know what would lead us to believe? We wouldn't look at that and go, wow, all of these parts were put into a microwave and randomly kind of formed this. No, we would say all of these point to an intelligent designer. Right? Intelligence doesn't come from non-intelligence. It speaks to a designer. And so these Chaldeans, most likely is what I believe, Babylonian uh, astronomers, they follow a star that stops over Bethlehem. Okay, what is up with the star? Can we get a little scientific today? You guys good with that? Like, I just came to read about the manger and I, like sing songs and my kids are in the choir, but now we're doing science. Okay, stay with me. Um, I think that these men may have been familiar with a prophecy that's uh, very obscure, found in Numbers 24. And tucked away in the middle of the book of Numbers is this guy named Balaam. Balaam uh, was hired by Balak, the king of Moab. Remember Balaam's donkey? Remember that story? All right, well, don't get lost in that. What happens is Balaam uh, was hired to curse the Israelites. He's kind of known as the guy that cursed people, like a seersayer. And whenever he uh, uttered prophecies, they seemed to come true. And so the king is like, hey, king of Moab, I want you to come and pronounce curses. And so Balaam's like, okay, here I go, I'm ready. Ready? And he opens his mouth and instead of curse, 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 he just blesses Israel. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And the king is like, what are you doing? And so this happens a few times. He's like, I can only speak what I see and I see blessing. And so Balaam kind of, in the, like in the backroom discussion, he kind of says, okay, here's, here's what we can do. If you want them to be cursed, I can't curse them. God won't let me. But if you allow them to sin, then they'll be cursed because of their sin. And so this kind of backroom discussion happens, and essentially um, Israel takes the bait and God ends up cursing them. But before that happened, Balaam's fourth prophecy, stay with me, this is powerful and it's tucked away in the middle of the book of Numbers. Check this out. This is Balaam. He says, I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, I see him, but he's not going to be anytime soon. And notice this, a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Uh, many believe that if Daniel knew of this prophecy, that he would have passed this down to his Babylonian stargazers. Uh, many people believe these men were studying the constellations and the stars and planets, and they were anticipating a special moment when that was fulfilled, when the birth of a king coming out of Jacob would be associated, his birth, with a star, with a special star. So what is the star? Okay, if you're taking note, a couple things it could be. Okay, it could be just a, a light, a small orb of light. 
Uh, Friday night I saw in California, SpaceX fired a, a rocket and everyone, celebrities, everyone's panicked. They're looking up like, oh my gosh, it's a UFO. And uh, it turns out it was Elon Musk doing his thing. And people were asking him, was that a UFO? And he said, absolutely. <laughs> I thought that was funny. He's supposed to say, no, it was me, but it was, it was uh, just, uh, just a rocket. A lot of people thought, is it North Korea? No, it's just a rocket. So was this that's happening in Matthew 2, is this just a, a random orb that wise men followed? It's kind of hard to explain that it was supernaturally leading them from the east to Judea. Either they were moving really fast, those camels were going, or this uh, really pokey, slow-paced kind of orb was going through the sky. All right. Other people believe, no, it wasn't miraculous. It was, a, it was a comet. It was a comet. And as it moved through the night, it was pointing them to Bethlehem. Uh, some people said, oh, it wasn't a literal star. It was the star inside the wise men's hearts. Ah, oh, no, that's not what it is. Um, I actually don't believe, was it a myth? Was it a miracle? Was it something more? I don't believe it was a comet. Um, you're leaving towards Jerusalem, towards Bethlehem. You need something faster, uh, long-term, than a fast-moving fireball. Okay, if you've ever observed comets, they don't last for months. Was it Halley's Comet? Someone might say, no, Halley's made a pass in 11 BC. So the timing's wrong. Um, but how could a star move and then stop? Uh, here's the theory I'm really intrigued by. Really intrigued by this theory. Um, when the wise men say that they saw the star in the east, the Greek phrase actually should be translated at its rising. In other words, we saw the star when it was rising above the horizon. Um, this can be interpreted as what scientists call a heliacal rising. Um, a constellation or planet appears just above the horizon. You guys know um, Venus, the morning star. It's kind of right there on the horizon. So what's really intriguing is around between 7 and 2 BC, again, there's some discrepancy on the time, there's historical evidence that Jupiter and Saturn and Mars all lined up at exactly the same point uh, from the vantage point of Israel. This is uh, the reference I want to give you right now, space.com. Here's the reference, okay? This is not bible.com. Space.com says this. Uh, let's put it up there. It says, uh, in fact, for eight consecutive months, the time it might have taken to travel the 500 miles or more from Babylonia to Judea, Jupiter and Saturn remained within three degrees of each other from late April of 7 BC until early January of 6 BC. That's when it would have started. They would have seen the star. They would have begun this journey. Now, what's interesting is that exact thing happened, if I can stay with me, that happened in the constellation Leo. Leo is known as the lion. Is there any scripture that talks about Jesus being a lion? I don't know. Later on, Venus, the morning star, ends up aligning a few years later with Jupiter, um, right near Regulus, which is the star that people call the king star. So it's interesting, this is happening uh, right at the same time. Uh, the, the, the star Regulus, I think we have a picture of it, bright kind of blue star, uh, that is actually the heart uh, of Leo the Lion's constellation. It's called the king's heart. So that was happening um, Jupiter was right next to that. And so Jupiter to the Jew, in Hebrew, Jupiter is known as Sedek, righteousness. The word Jupiter in Hebrew is translated righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and by the way, our sun at that exact moment happened to be in the constellation Virgo, which is the virgin. I just think all of this is interesting. Uh, all this alignment is happening all around the time the Magi would have arrived. Now here's what, again, space.com says. Stay with me. As the planets slowly descended toward the horizon, they got closer and closer together, these planets, Venus, Jupiter. 
Finally, at 8.30 p.m. local time, they drew to within a mere 0.6 of an arc minute of each other while appearing in the western twilight sky. To the Magi, the two brightest planets, to the naked eye, other than our sun, as far as objects in the moon and the sky, the two brightest planets must have appeared to coalesce into one and glowed before them like a dazzling beacon over Judea. Eyeglasses were many centuries in the future, so only people with perfect eyes would have seen the planets separated. Okay, and just intriguing to me. Um, the question is, though, well, how can verse 9 be fulfilled? Uh, verse 9 says that the star went before them and it came and stood over where the young child was. It stopped and stood. How does that happen? Well, again, I referenced Craig Chester. Okay, here's the last quote on this. Pretty interesting. He said, the word stop was used for what we now call a planet's stationary point. A planet normally moves eastward through all the stars from night to night and month to month but it regularly exhibits what's called a retrograde loop. That's why when you're on a freeway and you're driving the car next to you, it looks like their tires are going backwards. That's because you're going faster than them, right? And so as it approaches the opposite point in the sky from the sun, it appears to slow, come to a full stop, and move backward or westward through the sky for some weeks. Again, it slows, stops, and resumes its eastward course. It seems plausible, he says, that the Magi were overjoyed at again seeing before them as they traveled southward, his star, Jupiter, which at its stationary point was standing still over Bethlehem. We do, we do know for certain that Jupiter performed a retrograde loop in 2 BC. So here we have a timeline where all of this is absolutely possible. It doesn't have to be a, a miraculous thing. It is a miraculous thing in the sense that God has all creation, even the sun, moon, and stars, that declare his glory and communicate who he is. If none of that made sense, I understand. You can go and look up a documentary called The Star, which kind of answers a lot. Not the, not the, uh, not the Oprah movie with the cartoon, but The Star is a great reference. Now look at verse 12. It says, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country another way. Okay? Magi didn't come to worship the star. They came to worship Jesus. They were overjoyed at the star because it represented Jesus. It represented the arrival of the king of the Jews. And their worship didn't just include being overjoyed and bowing. It also included giving. It included gifts. Let's look at our final point in verse 11. It says that when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, and they fell down and they worshiped who? Who did they worship? They worshiped him. They worshiped Jesus. They didn't worship Mary when they had opened their treasures, notice they presented gifts to him, and here they are, the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I talked to a, a mom in the last couple of weeks. She said, we give our kids three gifts for Christmas because Jesus only got three, and our kids aren't better than Jesus. I love that. That's great. Um, notice with me that they fell down, right, prostrate. They opened treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, in the Greek, when it says they presented gifts, okay, you might want to circle that. They presented gifts. You know what that means? Every time the, that phrase is used in the Greek, 100% of the time in the New Testament, it does not mean a birthday gift or a present, a Christmas present. It always 100% of the time means a religious offering to God. They presented a religious offering. This is a worship offering. And now notice they give Jesus three gifts. We've sung this, we know this, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is the symbol of deity and glory. And man, that is a gift fit for a king. Can you imagine if you open that on the white elephant? <laughs> I got gold. I don't know what to do with this. This is amazing. They give Jesus gold. Not only that, but frankincense. 
Frankincense is actually an ointment or perfume usually offered on the altar of a deity. Uh, This is a gift that's fit for a priest. A gift for a king, a gift for a priest. But then there's myrrh. And to the Jews reading this, you can almost hear the record scratch in the audience. Wait, wait, myrrh? Myrrh? You can almost like picture the wise man who opens and offers the myrrh. Everyone in the room is kind of looking over, right, and kind of going, really? Like, what are you doing? Why would you bring myrrh? Uh, Myrrh is something you bring to a burial. Myrrh is something that you use to anoint a dead body. That's hardly a great baby shower gift. You know, hey, I know everyone got you diapers and a bassinet, but hey, I brought a, a funeral plot in case the child, you know, dies one day. Like, whoa, that's just, that's just horrible, right? Have you ever, guys ever received a gift from someone where it's totally awkward? It's just an awkward gift. You're like, I don't really know if this is a thank you or, or if you're trying to tell me something with this gift. I know I read about this one lady. Her mom got all the kids. These are grown-up kids. She got all of the kids portion control plates and gym memberships. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Appreciate that. So is myrrh an awkward gift? Well, not if you know the story of Christ. This is symbolic. Let me show you on the screen. The three different gifts in Christianity, myrrh represents mortal death. Frankincense denotes the holy priest and gold signifies royalty. You see, this is appropriate. The gifts that are presented to Jesus speak to his deity, his kingly nature. They speak to his priesthood, standing in the gap between God and man, and they speak to one day his death and his burial. In fact, in John chapter 19, myrrh was actually used in, as a spice to anoint the body of Jesus. These men came from afar to worship Jesus, and they brought something with them to offer him. We don't know if these gifts would be financially integral in their trip upcoming to Egypt and God knew their need as a poor family. We don't know exactly, but we do know that these men came from afar and within the first two years of his birth, later Herod is gonna put to death all of the young boys within the age of two. So we know it was around that time period. Uh, The 12 days of Christmas kind of celebrates the first day of Christmas, the 24th or 5th, and then uh, January 6th is the day that the wise men came. We don't know that for certain, but as we close this morning and we reflect on the meaning of Christmas, uh, I want to speak about a few things, and I want to invite the band to come forward as we close us uh, in song. If you guys want to close your Bibles for a minute, I just want to share a couple things with you about this time of year about Christmas. Just get settled in. As we close this morning, we see several different signs in this text that seem to speak to people. There's dreams in Matthew chapter 2, several dreams that direct people. They direct Joseph. They direct the wise men. uh, Keep them away from Herod. We see stars in the heavens that are leading the wise men. And I know some of you here today may be looking for a sign. You're looking for some type of miracle. You're looking for some type of dream to communicate something to you. But I want to point out someone else. There's the scribes and the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. And they don't look to the heavens and they don't look to dreams. They look to the scripture for clarity. But see, the thing is, they consult the scripture to find out exactly where their Messiah is to be born. And yet knowing that information, we don't see those scribes bowing. Jesus said in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you hope that in them you'll find life. But you fail to come to me, of which the scriptures testify to find life. We don't see Herod coming to worship. We see Herod coming to take advantage of Jesus. And I wonder, 
this morning if you and I possibly could be the same. Are we guilty of being interested in Jesus for only what he can do for us? Like Herod, maybe we're here this morning looking to learn something so we can selfishly gain something. Maybe we're like the scribes, the teachers of the law. I'm just here to investigate something, but I'm not here to really surrender to Christ. Or we this morning could be like the wise men, where we come not to be served, but to serve. Where we come to offer our lives to him because he offered his life for us. Listen, worship, it's surrendering all we have knowing that he's given us all we need in his son, Jesus. As we close this morning, do you know Jesus? You can. As the service comes to a close, in just a minute, I wanna give you an opportunity to make a decision for Christ. And that decision means I'm gonna turn from my sin, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna turn away from my sin, I'm gonna turn in faith to Christ. I'm gonna receive what Jesus has done for me on the cross. If you're here this morning, you've never made a public decision for Jesus, today can be that day. And in a minute, I'll give you that opportunity to just raise your hand and say, I wanna be saved, I want salvation to come to my house, I wanna know Jesus. See, we look in anticipation this time of year for the first advent of Jesus, his first coming as baby in the manger. However, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, we see those same gifts. And Isaiah prophesies something powerful about the Lord and the gifts that one day he'll receive. On the screen, Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And speaking to Israel. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth. In thick darkness, the peoples. Maybe that's you here today. They're just living in darkness. The darkness of your own depravity, of your own sin. The darkness of the evil this world has surrounded you with. But notice, it says, the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. This is a picture of Israel. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. I love verse six. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Notice this. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Did you catch that? One day the nations are gonna bring gold and frankincense. Why did Isaiah omit myrrh? Because Isaiah was speaking of Christ's second advent, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. There won't be myrrh needed because Jesus won't be suffering. He'll be ruling, he'll be reigning. This morning, church, Christ has come. Jesus is alive. The baby that was born in the manger would become the king on the cross. Jesus, you know, lived and died under the law to redeem those under the law. And one day he's gonna come again as conquering king. This morning, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Just for a minute, with our eyes open, with our heads looking around, is there someone here this morning and you don't know Jesus and this is the day? Imagine that, Christmas Eve. You'll always look back and remember this is the day that you responded in faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And today you can know Jesus and you can be set free and saved. Would you raise your hand 
if you've never responded in faith and today you wanna know Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning? You've never responded and you want today to be the day. Well, Christian, we bow our heads for a minute. Are you here this morning, believer? If you know him, are, we, are you bringing your life, your body as a living sacrifice? The scripture says this is our acceptable worship. Bring in our time, talents, and treasure. Bring in the good news, the praises of the Lord. I wanna encourage you to tell others about his unfailing love. As you celebrate Christmas this year, don't forget about the power of the cross, the power of his coming kingdom. Jesus will reign forevermore. And this morning, I'm gonna ask, are you allowing him to reign in your heart? While our heads are bowed, is that you, brother, sister in Christ? You just need prayer to allow Jesus to reign and rule in your heart. That's the kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus in our hearts. Would you raise your hand? You need prayer, just, and I need prayer to allow Jesus to rule and reign. I'm sitting as king, and I need Jesus to be king. I need to offer him, maybe not gold, frankincense, myrrh, but I need to offer him what life I have and surrender it on the altar. Awesome, I see your hands up. Anyone else? I'm gonna pray for you this morning. After I say amen, we're gonna stand together and close in a triumphant declaration that Jesus Christ will reign forevermore. And so pray with me. Father, we pray today that Jesus would reign in our hearts here. As we leave this service today, we would walk out with the joy of the Lord as our strength, that we would be radically changed where Jesus, his rule and reign is at, at home in my heart. I'm abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in me. Lord, would you help those who have raised their hand and those maybe who wanted to but the pride didn't allow them to, would you allow us, Lord, to submit to you? Break our hearts, Lord, for the things that break yours and help us to surrender to Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord. Thank you that you will rule and reign for all of eternity. And until that day, Lord, we're willing to bow our knees and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Stand with me. Let's worship our conquering King. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com.